Almighty God, this day may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, shaking us to new life in you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we begin together here this morning, not to scare you or anything, but I'm going to let you in on a little secret. All right? You ready? Here's the secret. It's November. I don't know how you all feel about that, but here's sort of how my mind works with that. It's November, which means we're basically at Thanksgiving. And if we're at Thanksgiving, we're basically at Black Friday. And if we're at Black Friday, we're basically at Christmas. And if we're at Christmas, well, we're basically getting ready to go into the new year. So basically, welcome to 2018 as we gather together here this morning. I don't know if your mind works that way. That's a little bit how it works for me as we gather together here this morning. But it's not just this issue of the next two months, a number of weeks quickly moving along, although I am sure they will. But it's also the ride and the roller coaster that we are going to go on over the next two months. Because stop and think about it. In just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. That's kind of this upward thing of joy and celebration to eat turkey, be with family, be off of work. That is all great stuff. But then right after Thanksgiving comes Black Friday. And at least in my mind, that's a stressful time. I feel like people are waiting in lines and they're going into debt and they're buying all these presents and they're just getting all stressed out. And so you kind of head down. But then not, after, not long after that, you start to head back up because then you're getting ready for Christmas. And Christmas is a celebration of new life and especially for us in the birth of Jesus, and it's a chance again to be with family and friends and to be off of work, and so it's wonderful. But then not long after that, we head into the new year. And there's some great things about the new year, but at least for me, part of what I think of with New Year's is those New Year's resolutions that we might make about 30 days with. And so we grind our way into the new year, trying to lose at least those five pounds or more that we gained over the holidays leading into the new year. And so for me, as we're kind of digging into that, I'm sort of like this downward trend kind of thing. And so you've got this up and down and up and down. It is a roller coaster of emotions and events that are going on there. Now, you know as well as I do, though, it's not just November and December in which we have this roller coaster of emotions, these highs and these lows, these ups and these downs. Life in general has a way of taking us from extreme high to extreme low and everything in between. So it's from everything from our loved ones getting sick and hurting to a new baby being born that we celebrate from unexpected bills that we were not prepared for to getting a new job opportunity that we weren't expecting from the test that we did fail to the test we thought we failed but we actually passed from shootings and violence and sexism and racism in a broken world to one of those people that we genuinely love who comes to us and says, I love you. And our hearts soar with that. Life is full of ups and downs and everything in between. As we come together today, we want to give thanks for a life and lives well lived from the saints who have gone before us. And when you stop and think about it, even that is an up and a down. Because we come together this morning and we celebrate these individuals who have provided a wonderful role model and who have meant so much to us and have offered us love and all these great things. That's a great thing. But then there's the low that they're no longer physically present with us to enjoy life on this side of eternity with. And that's hard. So from soaring heights to crashing lows and everything in between, would it surprise you as we gather together here this morning? Probably not. 
for me to say to you that God gives us a resource in each and every situation from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows and everything in between, from the greatest joy to the greatest struggle and everything in between, God gives us a resource and that resource is called prayer. Now, here's the problem when it comes to prayer. I need you to stop for just a second. I need you to listen for just a second. I need you to hear me when I tell you this. We think we know what prayer is or how to do prayer, but I don't think that we do. We think that prayer is this fairly flat topic. There's even a a danger in saying, hey, everyone, we're going to talk about prayer. There's such a danger not to be like, oh, gee, like I already know about prayer. It's not really that powerful or engaging or beautiful or any of these things. And we know just enough about prayer that we don't know about prayer. I would say that we're almost immunized against prayer. We have just a little bit of it that we think we get it, but in reality, we don't. But because we think we got it, we don't pursue the depths and the riches that prayer brings. I wonder for us in our own lives right now, how important, how powerful is prayer? Because if we are honest, I believe that the church is suffering an epidemic when it comes to prayer. We pray only the most shallow of prayers. So maybe in our bedtime ritual, we offer a prayer. Maybe when we get up in the morning, we offer a quick prayer. Maybe right before a meal, we pause for a few moments of prayer. And don't get me wrong, those are not bad things, but they don't even begin to scratch the surface of the power, the depth, the beauty, the life that we find in prayer. Recently, I heard a kind of a fun little story. There was a man of rather modest means who had dreamed of always having the opportunity to take a cruise. He always would see, you know, advertise these big, wonderful, luxurious ships, and the idea of being able to sail around somewhere exotic in the world was just so captivating and enthralling to him. And so he spent a lifetime never having to gotten to go on one of these cruise ships or to take a trip until one day he said, you know what, before I die, I am going to find a way to take a trip on a cruise ship. So he made up his mind, and he literally started saving every penny that he could. He scrimped, and he saved. He did everything that he could. He worked a lot of overtime shifts. He did everything that he could so that he could buy a ticket and take a cruise trip. And so he did that, and the day came where he finally did it. He saved up enough money. He bought his ticket, and then the day came for him to actually get onto the ship and to take the cruise trip. You can imagine how excited he was. He was beside himself with excitement. And the first couple days were wonderful. He was out there lounging on the deck, swimming on the pools of the ship, watching the sunrises and the sunsets. It was awesome. There was just one thing, though, that began to to bother the man. He noticed that every day people were leaving the dining area, eating this wonderful, exotic-looking, beautiful food, while he, every day, was eating the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that he had packed for himself on the cruise. And at first, he tried to not let it bother him. He was on this grand adventure of a lifetime, but after five days of being on the ship, of eating his peanut butter and jelly, of watching everyone else on the ship eat their lobster and their steak and their chocolate mousse and all of these things, he could bear it no longer. So he went up to one of the guests on the ship and he said, excuse me, sir, how are you able to afford all of this expensive food? To which the man looked at him and said, sir, don't you know that when you paid for this cruise, You also paid for all the food that you want. The feast is yours. This man had been sailing for days and had missed the feast, the richness, the abundance that was before him. 
Church, I believe this is us when it comes to this issue of prayer. We are settling for our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches when there is a feast that awaits if we would engage in the opportunity that God gives us in prayer. Prayer is a way to access and be in connection with God through each and every situation that life brings, from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows and every situation in between. And Scripture gives us so many examples of this coming into play with all of these different occasions in our life. And so throughout this series, we're going to be using different figures from the Old Testament as our guide on what it means to really live into prayer. So we begin this morning with one of the greatest Old Testament figures, actually one of the greatest biblical figures that there is, and that is the great King David. Now, David is a phenomenal character in Scripture. How important is he? Here's how important David is. In Scripture, there's only one person who gets four different biographical accounts of his life. And you can imagine who that is. It's Jesus with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of those accounts are about Jesus. In the Old Testament, there's only one character who has two different biographical accounts given of him, and it's David. He is that important. So he's talked about in First and Second King uh, Samuel, which carries into First and Second Kings, and then he's talked about in the book that we're in here this morning, which is First Chronicles. And when we get to First Chronicles here this morning, David is at the very end of his life. In fact, just eight verses after what we shared in this morning, we would discover in First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 28, that David dies. And right before he dies, we are given this powerful prayer that he prays and offers. So in a nutshell, what David is offering us here this morning is a prayer that is a reflection of a life well-lived. It is a prayer reflecting a life's legacy. And it's appropriate that we look at this prayer here today because we come on a day when we also come and give thanks for those saints who have gone before us and left a legacy for us to follow. And the reason that David left such a legacy is that throughout David's life, he had one driving passion. There was one thing that towards the end of his life, David got up for and lived and breathed in every way. There was one thing that drove him in absolutely everything he did. And the thing that drove David, his deepest desire was this. He wanted to invite the presence of God into the midst of the people. In any way that he could, this is what he gave his life for. David wanted to invite the presence of Almighty God into the heart, into the center, into the midst of God's people. This is what he devoted his entire life for. It was his passion. It was his purpose. It is literally what he lived for. But to understand that and to see how that's reflected in this prayer here this morning, we have to back up a little bit in David's story to understand what was going on. By the time David became the king... Something called the Ark of the Covenant was no longer of central importance to the people of Israel. I'm guessing a lot of us don't know what the Ark of the Covenant was outside of a reference to the Indiana Jones movie and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it's not quite that that we're talking about. The covenant that we're referring to is the Ark of the Covenant. It was a chest overlaid with gold and it had two cherubim on top and it was put in the temple area. And so we want to give you a rough idea of what that looks like. It was the only piece of furniture in the tabernacle area in the place of worship. The only piece of furniture there. there. And it was in the place called the Holy of Holies. It was the most holy, the most sacred place. That's where this Ark of the Covenant would be. And it was understood that when God would appear, that God in all of God's glory would appear here over the Ark of the Covenant. So literally, we are talking the almighty presence of God. We're talking about a shaking, quaking, heavenly brilliance, Shekinah kind of glory presence that when God would appear in the Holy of Holies, it was right here with the Ark of the Covenant. 
It was important and powerful. That's what the Ark of the Covenant was. But by the time David became the king, the Israelites had lost sight of how important the Ark of the Covenant was. Because here's what the Israelites did. They took this Ark of the Covenant, which was supposed to be in the most sacred of places, the most holy of places, and you know what they did with it? They took it out of this place of worship, and they took it to battle. (laughs) Think about that. They take the Ark, and they're taking it out against their enemies. And it was kind of like they were thinking, like in the Indiana Jones movie, that anyone who gets near the Ark of the Covenant, maybe they'll just melt and be out of our way. That's what they were hoping would happen with their enemies. But that is a superstitious and magical approach of God that isn't reality. Because God is not a magical, generic force out there. This God that you and I serve is personal in nature. I love the way Tim Keller says it. He says, God is not a sense of voltage that if you find just the right conductor boom, out he comes. We can't treat God that way, but Israel was treating God this way. They took the Ark of the Covenant out of the Holy of Holies, took God on the Ark of the Covenant into battle, and when they did that, they lost the battle and they lost the Ark. And when they lost the Ark, the Ark was physically taken outside of Jerusalem to the very edge and border of Israel between Israel and a country called Philistia. So now picture, here is this ark that was in the center, now on the edge, on the periphery, and it's physically out there. But I think it's more than just a physical representation. I think the ark now being on the border of Israel was symbolic of the relationship between God and Israel. That is to say, Israel, they believed in God. They believed in right doctrine. They followed the Ten Commandments. They were good moral people, probably like a lot of us. But God himself was remote in their lives, on the edge, on the periphery. So that, yes, God was their boss. There was a formal relationship. But God wasn't their father, their friend, their lover, their shepherd. God wasn't any of those things. It's kind of like picture this for just a moment. Picture two, a married couple, and the spouses sit down with one another, and imagine the one spouse saying to the other spouse, honey, I just got to tell you, you're a good spouse. I'm glad that we're married. You're dutiful, and you're supportive of me. But I got to be honest with you. I know that something else holds the key to your heart. I know you like me, and you appreciate me, and you help me, and you support me, but I don't hold the key to your heart another cause, your work, a child, another person. Something else has captured your passion. Honey, I don't have the key to your heart. That's how a lot of us are when it comes to God. Many of us believe, many of us follow God, but something else holds the key to our heart which means that God is out on the edge, God is out on the periphery of our being, which means that deep down in there's something else that we look for for significance. This is how it was with Israel. And this is what David wanted to change. He is desperate to see the presence of God go from the outer to the inner, that God will be in the midst of God's people. And he's desperate to do everything he can to see that over the course of his lifetime, this will happen. So David goes out and he thinks, if I get the ark and I get it from the edge and I bring it back and put it in the center of Jerusalem, then everything will be okay. So that's what he did. He went, he got the ark, he put it back in the center of the people's lives, at least physically. But here's what happened. Just bringing the ark back physically into the center of Jerusalem was not enough. It did not bring about the revival that David was hoping for. Please hear that. Just being in close proximity to something religious 
is not enough for us to deeply fall in love with God and God's passion and God's purpose. So it didn't have the intended effect that David wanted, but David said, I'm not going to give up. I want to see the presence of God in the midst of the people. So David said, we'll do more than just bring the ark back. I know what we can do. We will build a temple. We're going to raise money for a temple. We are going to build a house, a glorious entity unto God that will be so big, so powerful, so beautiful that not only the people of Israel will be inspired into the presence of God, but anyone who looks on the people of Israel and looks on the beauty of the temple will be enraptured with God and they will want to know this living God as well. The beauty of it will intensify the people's knowledge of God in such a way that they will bring God into the heart and center of who they are in every single way. Now, as it turned out, God had a slightly different plan in that he wasn't going to have David build the temple. He was going to have David's son Solomon build it. But that didn't mean that David couldn't help pave the way. So to help prepare and pave the way for the temple, this is what David does. Right before what we shared in earlier in the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 29, if we back up just a couple verses, here's what we hear going on with David. It says, In my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Did you hear how much David gave for the building of the temple? Did you hear the amount? 3,000 talents of gold. 7,000 talents of silver. Do you know how much that is? It is almost beyond our comprehension. One talent in that day was roughly 10 years wages for an average laborer. Think about that. 10 years worth of wages for the average person multiplied by 3,000. That would roughly be the equivalent of around $5 billion for us today. So David is taking as absolute much of his wealth as he can, and he's putting it towards the temple again so that people will be inspired and that the presence of God would be in the midst of the people. And when the people saw David doing this and living it out so passionately, it moved their heart. They were astounded, and they started to give. David was giving his all. That inspired them to start to give. And so we hear this in verse 6. Then the leaders of the families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. Didn't have to. They were inspired. And how much did they give? First Chronicles 29.7. They gave toward the work of the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And remember, a talent is 10 years worth of wages. So in essence, what the people of God are doing is literally diverting a large part of their gross national product into and towards ministry for the building of the temple. And why are they doing this? First Chronicles 29.9 tells us, it says, For they had freely given and wholeheartedly to the Lord, David the king also rejoiced greatly. In other words, do you see what's happening? Their hearts are beginning to change. 
David's dream and David's passion is finally coming true. The presence of God is starting to be drawn into the midst of the people because they're catching it and they're realizing that this God is so beautiful and so wonderful and so captivating and everything they've been looking for that they say, we're going to get everything that we can towards it as well. David, it's not just your desire anymore. We join you, David. We also want the presence of God in the midst of the people. And David rejoiced because his life's work was finally coming about. And when David realized that at the end of his life and this legacy is coming true, how did he pray? Look, 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 and 11. Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Do you hear the power in the prayer? It's not just a prayer of gratitude, although it certainly includes gratitude. It's a reflection of a legacy of a life well lived in God. It is a prayer reflecting his drive and his passion for God. It is a prayer that reflects what he truly lived for. So when we pray, it is not just going through a routine. When we pray, we are learning to pray the drive and the passion of our life. And when we learn to do that, prayer begins to change. Now, we can't go through this prayer of David's without noticing just a few things. We could lift up a whole bunch of things, but there's at least a few things I want us to catch here this morning that according to David's prayer here in 1 Chronicles 29, it shows and teaches us many things. One thing is that God is personal and not just that generic magical force we were talking about. When Israel treated God as a generic force, God ended up on the periphery and on the edge. God was distant and detached. How different would it be for you and I if we engaged deeply with God in personal prayer? It wouldn't just be a routine that we did and went through. Prayer would be transformed from a religious routine to time with the most personal, loving, advocate, father, and friend that we can imagine. And why in the world would we ever desire to put that aside or not want to spend time with the one who loves us more than we could love ourselves? Why would we ever consciously turn that down? Prayer gives us that opportunity. Prayer also makes us ask the question, but who am I? At the end of the day, David realized finally his life, it wasn't all about him. His life was about something much greater than him. And that's what gave him his satisfaction. That's what gave him his drive. That's what gave him his passion. Any great person, anyone who leaves a lasting legacy, realizes they live for something greater than themselves. So for Steve Jobs, it was the opportunity to put amazing, beautiful technology in the hands of ordinary people. For Michael Jordan, it was the opportunity to be the best basketball player that ever lived. For Abraham Lincoln, it was to hold a country together. For Einstein, it was to discover unknown physics in the universe. But as great as they are, they pale in comparison to asking and realizing, but who am I in relation to the creator of the universe? Prayer gives us the opportunity to say, but who am I? And the presence of God Almighty, the one who sent his son to live and to die for you and I, the one who's the creator of all reality, prayer gives us the opportunity to connect with that one and God's holy purposes for this world on this side of eternity leading into eternity. Prayer gives us that opportunity to realize there's something so much greater than ourselves. And in our right minds, that fills us with joy and gratitude 
Because that's how we were made. And finally, prayer intensifies the beauty of God in our lives to a point we finally just have to respond. When the Israelites began to realize the beauty and the meaning of what David was doing in the temple and raising up the temple, their hearts began to awaken in a way they never had before. They gave every resource they could, and they did so happily because they were starting to get it. God was moving into their midst, and it changed who they were and how they operated and how they lived. Do our prayers do that, church? Are we eating our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Are we diving into the depths of the feast and the richness that is before us in prayer? As we remember and we celebrate David today, we celebrate his prayer, which reflected his legacy. And it's not just David's legacy of prayer that we celebrate. We celebrate Shirley and Mary and Ellie. We celebrate Tom and Francis and Fred. We celebrate Forey and Martha. And let me tell you, if you know some of those saints, the depth of the well of prayer in their life ran deep. That is what we are invited into as we talk about prayer. I pray this day that we will not leave without making at least one commitment in our own life to a step of further committed prayer, whatever it is. More time with a family member, a spouse, a child. More time with just you and God where you say, I'm not just going to quickly zip through it. I'm going to give this intentional time to you, Lord. At the very least, we would request, we've started to put information out about this, but would you set the alarms on your phone or watch for 517? You can do AM or PM, whichever you want. Morning people, you can do the AM. Evening people, the PM. Because 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says simply, pray continually. And that's what we as the people of God want to do. And when your alarm goes off at 517, morning or evening, here's what we ask you to do. Pray what God lays on your heart, but specifically, would you pray for baptisms and for spiritual transformation? Because that means more people are engaging God in a real way that their life and their legacy will reflect God for eternity. If we can make that commitment today, then God begins to use us with a heart drive like David's to bring the presence of God into the midst of the people, that God would use our lives in a lasting legacy kind of way. On behalf of the love of Jesus, for the sake of the world, let us pray. Amen.